Words can have multiple meanings, and most words don't usually have just one simple meaning. They can mean a variety of things depending on the context. Maybe a good example of this is the word rock. It can seem straightforward, but it's actually a pretty vague word. Rock can be a type of music, or a diamond, a way of holding a child in your arms, or a chunk of dirt. And even if we do understand what someone means by a word, like which definition they're using, there's still some ambiguity. Like, if I tell you to imagine a rock, what picture comes to mind? How big of a rock do you imagine? I picture something palm-sized. Yeah. And I'm guessing each listener is picturing a slightly different rock. So even though I use one word, there's still a range of what it can be describing. And most words work like this. Most words have a range of possible meanings, but also words have meanings that sometimes overlap. So a small rock could be called a pebble, and a large rock could be called a boulder. But I can still describe both as a rock. The word rock fits somewhere in the middle. And the meanings of the words overlap. And all words do this. They have ranges of meaning that often overlap, and this becomes really important when we try to understand words from the Bible. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek, and a lot of times those words had a different range of meaning than our English words. They don't always overlap with our words very well. So when we read English translations, we might picture something that the original writers actually didn't have in mind. And this really comes into play with the Hebrew word for justice, the word mishpat. Kaylee, what's the first thing you think of when you hear someone say the word justice? The images that come to mind are things like chains, or maybe a courtroom or prison. Yeah, a lot of times in English, when we talk about justice, we're talking about criminals and consequences. Our word justice has a few different meanings, but by far the most common use is our standard dictionary definition. The justice is the process or result of using laws to fairly judge and punish crimes and criminals. This is where it gets fuzzy, though, because in Hebrew, the word mishpat actually doesn't generally refer to crime and punishment. Kaylee, how would you sum up the meaning of mishpat? Mishpat is mostly concerned about human thriving. It was about restoring and sustaining shalom. We'll talk about shalom more in the future, but. Think of it as a well-ordered, bountiful, utopia-type piece where everyone and everything is wholly alive and thriving as God intended. And it's Mishpat's aim to bring shalom. Around 90% of the time that the word Mishpat is used, the authors are describing an active pursuit of a just and flourishing society. It's only occasionally that the word describes any kind of punishment. And a lot of times, English Bibles don't translate mishpat as justice. Instead, translators will use words like custom, manner, or order, which we wouldn't consider those things justice issues. Another difference between mishpat and our concept of justice is that mishpat wasn't just something for police or courtrooms; it was everyone's duty. 
Every Israelite was responsible to live in a way that helped their neighbors flourish. There's a theologian named Bruce Waltke who puts it this way. He says that the purpose of Mishpat was to establish the heavenly norm or pattern on earth. Wow, that reminds me of the Lord's Prayer. So Mishpat is essentially the human participation in the Lord's Prayer to let God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And this makes sense why God would tell the people of Israel in Micah 6.8 to do Mishpat. Doing justice is kind of a weird expression in English, like, how am I supposed to do justice? I'm not a police officer. But it makes total sense in Hebrew, because Mishpat was a proactive, constructive, communal pursuit of shalom. It's something that you could do every time you took any action to help your neighbor, especially the disadvantaged, to experience shalom. So Kaylee, how many times does Mishpat show up in the Bible? How's it used? Mishpat shows up a whopping 425 times in the Old Testament. 31 Old Testament books use it. The biblical authors clearly thought that it was integral to the story. In Proverbs 2, 8 through 9, we see Mishpat described as a path. It's a lifelong way of living. It says there, For the Lord guards the path of the mishpat and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right in mishpat and fair every good path. So mishpat isn't an individual action. It's a whole way of living, a path to walk. That's right. That's the picture that scripture gives us. And this is something God especially cares about. Isaiah 30, 18 describes the Lord as a God of mishpat. So Mishpat is an attribute of God. Then Isaiah 61.8 says that the Lord loves Mishpat. And this is one of the only things God says he loves that's not a person. And it makes sense why God cares so much about this, because Mishpat is the way to bring shalom. Think of it this way. If I go in the woods and see a bunch of wild plants, does that make it a garden? No, that's just a bunch of wildlife and weeds. Right. And we call it wildlife because there's no order to it. So some plants are choking out others. They're fighting for resources. It's random and chaotic. What makes a garden a garden is that there's order and each plant has what it needs to thrive. And some plants even help one another grow when they're planted together. They each produce nutrients that the other plant needs. And that is shalom. When everyone loves their neighbor and lives at peace, So if the garden is shalom, then the act of gardening, that's mishpat. I love that. That really clarifies why the biblical emphasis of the word mishpat is about restoring people, not just punishing them. To build the analogy further, sometimes in a garden, a plant will grow in a way that hurts the growth of other plants. And then you might need a different kind of justice. Oh boy, yeah. Last year, my tomato bush completely overtook the pepper plants. 
I had to trim it way back to give my peppers more room to grow. And sometimes plants don't produce fruit. In that case, pruning them might help them focus their energy on making better fruit. But what if you prune a sprawling plant over and over and it refuses to produce fruit? After multiple prunings? Well, a good gardener would uproot the plant so others can take its place. And that's where the punitive aspect of mishpat does come into play, that final 10%. God wants restorative justice, wants everyone to thrive, but God warns that he will ultimately use retributive justice on those who persist in fruitlessness. But his desire is for everyone to thrive, and he patiently persists in his garden, pruning us and seeking our fruitfulness. I'm constantly reminded of the gospel in all of this. Isn't mishpat exactly what the Lord does with us? He wants us to experience shalom, for us to flourish together and experience life the way He designed it. Absolutely. He's shown us His restorative justice. Ultimately, Jesus chose to suffer retributive justice for us. He went to the cross in our place. And even though we were His enemies, He wanted to restore us rather than condemn us. I am so thankful that His justice is better than ours. This also has pretty significant implications for our lives as followers of Christ. We mentioned earlier in Proverbs 8 that mishpat is like a path. Christ's life is actually a visual picture of what it looks like to walk the path of mishpat. And think about it, how much of His earthly ministry was spent restoring people? Oh man. Most of Jesus' miracles were a direct unwinding of the effects of the fall. Jesus was constantly bringing mishpat to lepers and prostitutes, to social outcasts and tax collectors. He healed and restored people who were completely despised and rejected by becoming despised and rejected himself. He went around unwinding poverty, sickness, and social hierarchy, racial prejudice, and self-righteousness. These are all mishpat issues. And Jesus compared the religious leaders to fruitless trees. He warned them to repent and take the low place, to start bearing fruit. He invited them to see themselves correctly as stewards, to give away their possessions and feed the poor, to help others thrive. God's kingdom is a momentous reversal of how the world works. And if we're not fighting for the low place, then we show that we really don't get it yet. So, Garen, how do you think Mishpat can inform our current criminal justice system? How does the Lord's Mishpat confront our justice? I think it challenges us to really consider whether we value restoration and flourishing the way God does. American culture offers us a free license to despise criminals, but God's Word doesn't give us that license. In fact, pretty much every one of the dozens of biblical portraits of prisoners is positive. Yeah. America incarcerates people at about eight times the rate of our peer nations. And as we're talking about God's mishpat, it really confronts this. Yeah, God's justice looks different than ours. God's justice is sometimes punitive, but that's not its chief aim. And on a more practical level for most of us, 
Mishpat challenges how we make and use our money and who we pursue or avoid. These are all aspects of our lives that Mishpat invites us to reevaluate. There really are endless ways for us to follow Jesus in bringing Mishpat to the world. It doesn't always look the same for two people because we all have different gifts and opportunities, but we are called to work towards a world where all our gifts are directed by God's Spirit towards God's mission, to grow God's kingdom of love and peace until it fills the whole earth. That is the kind of justice that God desires. So we'll leave you with this quote from Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do mishpah, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God?